0: Hello everyone and welcome to the Mimetic Exegete Podcast. I'm your host, Simon Skidmore. We've been making our way through the laws of the Book of Exodus, commonly known as the Covenant Code. These laws represent Israel's attempts to keep peace and order by managing mimetic rivalry within their community. If Israel fails to observe the Lord's commandments and statutes, they will experience a memetic crisis like that seen in the Exodus accounts. To this end, the legislator lists many more rules designed to rally the community around the Lord while stifling memetic rivalry. For example, the people are forbidden from reviling God or even uttering the name of a rival deity. The people are also commanded to rally around the Lord as they observe the Sabbath rhythm and certain feasts which builds community and a shared corporate identity. Cursing a ruler is also forbidden because it undermines the social hierarchy which helps stifle mimetic rivalry. Attempting to engage in mimetic rivalry by degrading a rival's honour is also taboo. Yet, there are some positive examples of non mimetic action also given. The person who discovers their enemy's ox going astray must return it to its owner. The idea seems to be that you have a responsibility to care for everyone in the community, even those you hate. By these means, the legislator attempts to keep peace and order within the community. Let's read on now from chapter 23, verse 20. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. If you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites, and Jebusites, and I will blot them out. You shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will set my terror before you, and you will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hibbites, the Cainites, the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little I will drive them out from before you, until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out from before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. The Lord promises to send an angel to protect the people of Israel and to bring them into the land of promise. This angel personifies the primitive sacred. The lord of mimetic rivalry, the identity god, says that his name dwells within that angel. In other words, Israel desire to create their own identity as a nation. Observing the Canaanites living prosperously in their own land, the Israelites desire to take possession of Canaan for themselves. They want to become like the Canaanites. They want to be their own people, happy and prosperous, just like those Canaanites seem to be. Israel's desire for the Canaanites' land will kindle a rivalry that will culminate in war. To prevail in their war with the Canaanites, Israel must remain united against their rival. Their common desire for land of Canaan unites Israel against the land's inhabitants who become an obstacle to the community's desire. The unification of Israel against a common enemy is the angel, who the Lord sends to protect and guide Israel. If the community fail to listen to this angel, and all the Lord has said to them, then their own transgressions and rivalry will consume them from within. To prevail, Israel must rally around their common desire to establish their identity as a nation in the land of Canaan. The community engage in a fierce rivalry with the inhabitants of the land, and the Canaanites imitate Israel's desire for the land of Canaan. As these two rivals struggle with one another over the desired object of the land of Canaan, Israel and the Canaanites become doubles of each other. The two doubles will exchange reciprocal blows with each other, but the Lord promises that Israel will prevail so long as they resist the temptation to worship the gods of Canaan. Why would Israel want to worship the Canaanite gods? Because that's how mimetic rivalry works. Doubles will imitate each other in every way, including worship, until they eventually become indistinguishable to the outside observer. For the legislator, worship becomes the one area of distinction between the Israelites and the inhabitants of Canaan. Canaanite worship is painted as a monstrous practice from which the land must be cleansed. Those who worship the gods of Canaan are also painted as abhorrent monsters and for this reason they are not granted the same clemency as other poor, marginalized foreigners dwelling peacefully with Israel. In other words, the Bible's ruthless treatment of the Canaanites and their depiction as monsters can be explained from a mimetic perspective. Unlike the dispossessed sojourner who relies upon the community's grace and mercy to survive, the Canaanites possess the land which Israel desires for themselves. As Israel begin to view the Canaanites as an obstacle to their desire and happiness, a rivalry between these two people groups is forged as they become monstrous doubles of each other. Reading on now from chapter 24. Then he said to Moses, "'Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nabub, and Abihu, and seventy elders of Israel, and worship from afar.' Moses alone shall come to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain, twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and seventy elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of Israel, they beheld God, and they ate and they drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain, and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone, with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up to the mountain and the cloud covering the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people." Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights. In this passage, Israel face a make or break type moment. They have reached the mountain of God which burns with smoke and fire. We have seen this imagery depict the lord of mimetic rivalry throughout our studies so far. Now Israel will be tested to see if they can survive their own mimetic rivalry. To this end, a number of measures are taken. First, only Moses ascends the mountain of God while the rest of the community remain at the foot of the mountain. In this way, the community is protected from the Lord's violence. If the Lord lashes out against Moses and dies, the rest of the community remains safe. Second blood sacrifices are made as a means of ratifying the covenant between the people and the Lord. Notice that the people are united in their resolve to obey the voice of the Lord of mimetic rivalry. We have already seen the community unite together in mimetic violence against Moses. To avoid repeating this pattern, Moses facilitates a covenant in which the community promises to observe the Lord's rules and commands. By these means, mimetic rivalry within the community will be minimized. Third, Israel's leaders share a sacrificial meal with the Lord on the mountain to confirm and enact the peace achieved through the covenant. With their rivalries put aside, Israel's leaders behold the Lord of mimetic rivalry with clarity. Fourth. The stones with which the community would have killed Moses are transformed into tablets bearing the Lord's commandments. In this way, the primary symbol of the communal scapegoating becomes the basis of law and order. By these means, Israel passes the test as Moses is able to survive in the Lord's presence and descend the mountain after 40 days and 40 nights which remind us of the Genesis flood narrative. In this story, Noah survives a flood of mimetic rivalry which lasts for 40 days and 40 nights. After this period, Noah and his family descend Mount Ararat to build a new world. Likewise, Moses endures 40 days and 40 nights with the lord of Memetic rivalry and descends Mount Sinai to build a new nation with the people of Israel. The next couple of chapters prescribe the building of Israel's portable sanctuary, the Tabernacle. I'm going to skip over most of this material because from a mimetic perspective I don't have too much to add or say and it is quite repetitive and doesn't exactly make for stimulated reading. One observation though is the recurrent command throughout these chapters to construct the sanctuary after the pattern shown on the mountain. The Lord's dwelling place is Mount Sinai. For the Israelite community, the summit of Mount Sinai is where God's heavenly realm touches earth. The Israelite community must imitate the Lord's sanctuary upon Mount Sinai if they want the Lord to take up residence among them. The imitation continues with the fabrication of the Ark of the Covenant. I mentioned earlier that Moses' experience on Mount Sinai mirrors Noah's experience on the flood. Noah survived the flood of mimetic violence within a wooden ark which he built according to the Lord's strict instructions. Now the Israelites must build a wooden ark to help them survive mimetic violence within their community. While Noah covered the wood of his Ark with pitch to insulate it from the rising tide of mimetic violence, the Ark of the Covenant will be covered with pure gold cherubim. The cherubim, literally the burning ones, again call to mind the image of the Lord as fire. Just like the cloud which accompanies the Lord's fire, the cherubim conceal the top of the Ark with their wings. From this position of concealment, the Lord promises to speak and command the people of Israel just as He did from Mount Sinai. By imitating the Lord's sanctuary on top of Mount Sinai, the Israelites create a dwelling place for the primitive sacred to contain and manage mimetic rivalry within their community. To manage the primitive sacred, Israel requires specialist priests consecrated to the Lord and dressed in appropriate attire. Just as Moses ascended Mount Sinai to converse with God, so the priests will enter the Lord's presence in the sanctuary. We are told in chapter 28 that the priests must wear holy garments, that is specific garments set aside for service in the tabernacle bells are stitched into the fabric of these garments, so that the priests may be heard moving inside the sanctuary, assuring all outside that they are still alive. At any time, the lord of mimetic violence could break out against these priests and consume them. The priests must even wear special undergarments lest they bear guilt and die. As dangerous as their calling might be, the priests must continue in their vocation to protect the community. The priests wear a special breastplate inscribed with the names of the twelve tribes of Israel so that they may represent the community to God in the holy place. You see, the Israelite priests are a select group of scapegoats chosen to undertake the dangerous work of ministering to the primitive sacred on behalf of their community. Before undertaking their dangerous calling, the priests must be consecrated. Again, sacrificial animal blood features prominently in this ritual. Scholars generally agree that sacrificial blood functions as a type of ritual detergent, removing the invisible stains of guilt and impurity. In this passage, blood is smeared on the right ears, right thumb and big toes of Aaron and his sons as a means of purifying the priest's faculties for service in the tabernacle. Without such purification, the primitive sacred may lash out in violence against the priests and their community. The anointing oil and the blood of the altar is then sprinkled on Aaron's sons which purifies their garments and dedicates them to the sacred purpose of ministering in the tabernacle. Clothed in these sacred garments, the priest will enter the Lord's sacred space in the hope of successfully procuring the Lord's blessing while avoiding the curse of mimetic violence. Thanks again for joining me on the Mimetic Exegete podcast. If you'd like to continue the conversation, you may do so on the Mimetic Exegete Facebook group. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you.